The reading for today is from the Gospel of John, chapter 13, verses 31 through 38. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. All right, thanks, Ben. So it's, um, it's interesting to me how God gifts and equips a particular faith community, uh, Carrie, who is helping to lead all of that, and you saw her in the video, in the interview, has uh, not only a degree from uh, USC, sorry ASU fans, but a, a degree from USC in broadcasting, but also is in the broadcasting industry, and so she's been really helpful in being able to put together things like that. It's nice for us to have resources like that, so appreciate that. Um, every week I mention this. It would be helpful if you had your Bibles open to the text we're going to look at today, which is John chapter 13, verses 31 uh, through 38. We've been working our way through the gospel of John, taking intermittent breaks occasionally for other things that we are doing. And guess what? After today, we take another six-week break from the gospel of John in order to complete the series that we, were, we had just started and were two weeks into uh, when the lockdown happened in March 2020. So if you weren't around, we're going to reintroduce the series so that you can, you can get caught up with us. But if you were around, you'll remember that we were uh, two weeks into our countercultural convictions series uh, when we had to shut everything down. And so we're going to go back and finish that, partly because we felt convicted to do it, because we thought it would, uh, we think it's important, especially uh, with everything that's going on in the world today, we need to make sure that we are solidly entrenched in the gospel of Jesus Christ and why we are. Uh, but the second reason we're doing it is because we've had a tremendous number of people who have said, are you ever going to come back to countercultural convictions and, and finish that? Because uh, we were really interested in that. And so that's why uh, the, uh, the preaching collective team decided we ought to bring that back. So... Uh, today we're going to finish John chapter 13, give us a nice little break point before we get back into it in October. So let's review where we've been in John chapter 13 before we do the last nine verses. Uh, Jesus, against all cultural decorum and intuition, he washes the disciples' feet and then he teaches them about why that was important and how they need to be people who are uh, really and metaphorically washing other people's feet as well. And then last Sunday, we got a lot more detail about the coming betrayal um, by Judas of Jesus. Lots of teaching in regard to that. And then today, we get to talk about the new commandment. So this is a big deal. The new commandment that Jesus gives not only to his disciples, but by extension to anybody who would follow him. And so he gives this new commandment to us as well. And we get to talk about Peter promising not to deny or abandon Jesus when he comes to that really important point. But then Peter, of course, does deny him and abandon him in the moment. So off we go. As usual, I'm going to read through everything slowly, uh, a few verses at a time, and we'll just kind of unpack things and see what it means to us today. So starting with, actually, I'm going to go back one verse and start in verse 30, which was the end of last week's message, and go through 32 initially. So after receiving the morsel of bread from Jesus, Judas immediately went out, and it was night. When Judas had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. Jesus, of course, is referring to himself. He calls himself the Son of Man at times. 
And he says, if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. So John, the narrator, says when he had gone out, so after Judas had left the dinner to do his evil work, and again, other than John, uh, the rest of the disciples really didn't know why Jesus had left. They thought that he had probably left in order to go uh, get more food for the party or to actually help give money to the poor. They didn't quite realize that Judas was going out to meet with the Sanhedrin and bring the uh, party that was going to arrest Jesus to Jesus. So it's interesting how Jesus responds to this. He knows that that's what's going to happen, that his uh, unjust arrest is imminent. And so he knows something really bad is going to happen to him sometime in the next 12 hours. And yet Jesus talks about this, saying this is actually how God the Father and the Son of Man, me, the Son of God, this is how we are going to be glorified. Now, why would that be? Well, Jesus and John are both reminding the reader that there is glory in the work of redemption. The hard work of redemption actually points to glory, and there is glory in it. God is going to redeem us. Understand, he's going to redeem us. And by us, I mean all of us. We're all in the same boat. We are sinners who have fallen short of the glory of God. As Paul reminds us in the book of Romans, God is going to redeem us through humility, betrayal, injustice, sacrifice, the cross, and then his resurrection. That's where the Father and Son get their glory, through the costly, sacrificial, unjust work of the Son being wrongfully executed so that those who actually do deserve judgment can be free. See, we are, free. We are made free by Jesus, and I know it doesn't feel like it because we're still fighting the temporal battles of this world and Satan is still around, but in reality, we are free. And this is why the number one admonition, the most often given admonition in the New Testament by Jesus, some 500 times, this is why he says, don't be afraid, fear not. Because ultimately, we don't have anything to be afraid of because God has done all the work for our redemption. And so what we learn here is that glory comes from everything that you and I tend to shy away from. And, and it comes from things that, frankly, and I understand this because I was in the marketplace for almost two decades before uh, going back to school and becoming a pastor. I understand this glory in the marketplace also comes from things that don't really work necessarily in the marketplace too often. And there's tension there. But glory comes from everything that we tend to shy away from. And that would be humility, smallness. Uh, Tim Mon says all the time that we should seek to be small. Jesus must increase and we must decrease. It comes from sacrifice. It even comes from injustice. And, and that, the fact that it comes from injustice leads to another thing that it comes from, and that is that we really need to learn how to keep our mouths closed even when we feel like it's time to stand up and say something snarky. Maybe there's times when we need to learn the discipline of just not saying anything at the wrong time or, in some cases, at the right time. I'm not saying we should never speak up, but there are times when we're speaking up when it's not the right time, and we need to be careful about that because that's the culture we live in. That's the culture we live in. Now, look at that next verse, verse 33. There's actually quite a bit here. Jesus says, little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A couple of things here that will get broken down into a couple of more things. First of all, why does he call them little children? Well, it was common in their day. There are lots of rabbis in the first century then. Jesus was a rabbi. He had a yoke of disciples. And it was common for the disciples to call their rabbi father. And so there were times when the rabbi would call his disciples his children. And it was a term of affection and endearment. But also, secondly, this is not the first time that Jesus has said, you can't go where I am going to go. 
Jesus said this twice. He even references it here. I said this twice to the Jews already. And the Jews, if you remember when we were going through that, the Jews assumed that he was either going to go to the Gentiles. That meant that he was either going to go to the Gentiles and try to minister to the Gentiles. And a pious Jew would never go around a Gentile for any religious reason. They were unclean. Or they thought that Jesus was actually going to go and commit suicide, which is, again, something that a pious Jew would never have anything to do with. That would be an affront to them. But now Jesus says this, and he will say it again in verse 36, but he says it here now in the strict confines and context of his 11 disciples. So two things there. Number one, he here, here he is primarily talking about his crucifixion. Not everything necessarily that follows, but right here he's talking about the crucifixion. He's saying, I'm the only one who can actually be crucified. I'm the only one who can atone for your sins. I am the only lamb that is worthy. You can't go where I'm going right now in the temporal. Now, in a sense, he is referring eventually to the ascension and the return to God in heaven, and he's going to prepare a place for us, which we'll see in chapter 14. But here, primarily, he's saying, this cross thing, only I can do it. And here you go. I'm doing it so that you don't have to. I'm doing it so that you don't have to. And then second, he clarifies just a minute later in verse 36 that they cannot follow him now, but that they will be able to follow him later. So here's what he's telling his disciples by saying that. He's telling them that his work on earth is coming to an end, but his disciples' work is just beginning. And that would be us, as well as them. Now, they didn't quite understand it then, Especially Peter had no idea what was going to happen to his life after uh, Jesus' resurrection and ascension and the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, which was going to be amazing for Peter, and he's going to be a completely different person. But he's, Jesus is saying, I'm at the end of my worldly ministry. Yours is just beginning. And so look at verses 34 and 35. Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, so also are you to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So why? This is a big question, I think. Why? We know there's a new commandment. Uh, Sometimes we're not too inquisitive, though. Why is it a new commandment? Why would this be a brand new commandment? Wait a minute, I thought all the commands were in the Old Testament and we were all set. This is a new commandment because there are nuanced changes in his commandment that he's making. And there's actually four reasons, if you dig into this, there's four reasons why this could be called a new commandment. So here's number one. It was common in their context for the rabbi to command his disciples to love him so that other people would know that they were his disciples to love the rabbi. Jesus' command was obviously different because he's saying you're to love each other and by that people will know that you're my disciples. So that's a shift. Number two, believe it or not, in their culture, might be hard for you to believe, but in their culture, just like us today, they had a problem with effusive, self-centered, self-aggrandizing love of self. And so Jesus' command is to take the focus off self and start pushing their love outward toward others. Gospel-centered and outward focus. At Redemption Church, we have seven core values and and cultural values, and and that is one of them, that we are gospel-centered and outward focused. Um, I'll tell you a little story. There's this guy named Bill Lawrence. About four and a half years ago, when... Uh, One of our founding pastors, Tom Schrader, was getting very ill. Tom passed away two and a half years ago. Uh, When he was getting very ill and he was teaching those midweek Bible studies uh, across Phoenix, uh, more and more he was asking me to substitute for him, fill in for him, because he just didn't have the strength or the ability to be able to get up and, and, and teach at his priority living ministry. And so... One of the studies was Thursday noon at North Phoenix Baptist Church in their big fellowship hall. And so I became kind of a regular there for a while teaching there. 
And there was this, and uh, sorry, I don't, I, I, we have to be really careful with everything we say now, so I don't say this pejoratively. It's just the truth. It's a true observation. There was this really old guy who was attending there, okay? And his name was Bill Lawrence, is Bill Lawrence. So he's attending, and, and I, I didn't know who he was or his name, but I, I knew that he was there every single week. And occasionally he would come up afterwards and say hello and ask me a few questions and stuff. And um, finally, one day, he comes up to me, and he finally introduces himself and give me, gives me his name. And he says, hey, if, uh, if I buy you a cup of coffee, would you sit down with me for 30 minutes and let me ask you questions? And I said, well, yes, depending on the questions, yes. Um, but I'd be glad to do that. Where do you live? And he says, well, I live at the Orangewood Terraces, which is a mile and a half from our house up on 16th Street near Northern. I said, well, this is going to be an easy gig, you know. So we set a time, went up there, sat down with him, and he asked me all these questions, and it was fine. Uh, we had a great conversation, and when he was done with his questions, I looked at him and I said, all right, now it's my turn to ask you some questions. So tell me the Bill Lawrence story. I don't, I, I don't know really that much about you. Where did you grow up? What did you do? Blah, blah, blah. And he said he grew up in the Midwest, and that he went to medical school and became an OBGYN, and had a practice in West uh, Texas, uh, until the mid to late 1950s. And he sold that practice and moved to Phoenix and opened a practice with a couple of other guys uh, in, in central Phoenix. And um, I said, well, where did you deliver babies? And he said, well, primarily at Good Samaritan Hospital, which is now University Banner, but primarily at Good Samaritan Hospital. And I said, oh, wow. I was born at Good Samaritan Hospital in 1959. And he said, well, who was... Who delivered you? And I said, well, it was my father's best friend. His name was Bob Jones. And he goes, yeah, he was my partner. Yeah. Small world, right? So anyway, I, just to be sure, I said, Bob Jones is kind of a common name. Did he have any kids? And he said, oh, oh yeah, he, he, had, he had kids. Robert was one, and he married Marlene. And I said, yeah, that's the same Bob Jones. And so we talked. Now, all of that is just kind of interesting trivia. But here's what's really interesting. Uh, Bill just turned 96. Bill and I meet every three weeks on Thursday morning for an hour. And, and he thinks I'm doing some great service to him by coming in and meeting with him. He doesn't realize that every time I go and sit down with him, I'm learning this incredible world of treasures. It's just amazing to pick his brain and talk to him. And here's what I've discovered about um, Bill. At the age of 96, he still drives safely. And he goes every week on Tuesday to the Alhambra prison complex and teaches a Bible study to inmates there. He is also deeply involved with alongside ministries, which we are. It's just that he goes there on different nights than we ever do, so I never ran into him uh, there. But he's deeply involved with alongside prison ministries. Um, while he was in practice, and he practiced until he was in his late 70s, while he was in practice, every year he would take three months off in order to go overseas and serve under-resourced communities there and, and just donate his, his ability and talents. He would do that every year. Um, when our oldest daughter, Shelby, was trying to get into PA school, of course, he was trying to get her uh, to maybe lean towards getting her PA degree and then going and living overseas. I never told her that until now. She has a job in Phoenix, so now I can tell her that. Okay. Um, but he was very interested in Shelby's progress and everything. And until a month ago, I just found out last time I went, until a month ago, he cared for his wife, Marty, uh, who was, uh, for the last 10 years, was in late-stage dementia. Now, he was eligible for 40-hour-a-week care to be brought in for her, but he refused it. He only took 15 hours a week so that he could go and do his Bible study teaching at Alongside Ministry in Alhambra Prison Complex. He only took 15 hours a week because he wanted to be his wife's primary caregiver, and she just passed away about uh, a month ago. So here's the whole point of me telling you that. This guy, if you look up outward focused in the theological dictionary, there's a picture of Bill Lawrence there. That's a picture of what it means to be outward focused. And he's just frankly a great inspiration to me. And he is an embodiment of the new commandment. And then here's the third reason that this commandment is new. And I think this is really profound. Uh, so maybe you want to take a sip of water or coffee right now and then listen up. The new standard of this new commandment is Jesus saying, 
as I have loved you. Probably the biggest reason for this being a new commandment. So how is it that Jesus loved them and loved us? He went to the cross. He died to self. He was a master forgiver. His forgiveness involved patience, incredible patience. He was patient with his disciples. How many times, especially if you read the Gospel of Mark, how many times do you look at the disciples and go, what is wrong with you guys? And why wouldn't Jesus just walk away from some of you? He was incredibly patient with his disciples. And it involved suffering the cost, the cost of his disciples' mistakes and sin. Uh, some of you remember terrible day, October 2nd, 2006, when a guy named Charles Roberts walked into an Amish uh, school and opened fire, and he, tell, he, he murdered 10 schoolgirls between the ages of 8 and 13, and then turned the gun on himself and committed suicide. So what did the Amish families in that community the families of the slain girls, and the rest of the Amish community do. They publicly declared their forgiveness for the killer, and then they rallied to support the killer's family, who must have been dying a thousand deaths, knowing what their son had done. And I will tell you, that Amish community was roundly criticized for extending their care and their forgiveness. Roundly criticized for that. But they understand the sacrificial cost of God's love. So with great perseverance, Jesus bore with his disciples in their struggles, their faults, and their foolishness. And then he went to the cross. And he was willing to give his life for his disciples. John, the writer of this gospel, even writes specifically about this in his first letter, 1 John, in chapter 3, verse 16, where he writes, By this we know love that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us, and so we ought to lay down our lives for others. There's a church father named uh, Tertullian. He was alive in the third century AD, so in the 200s. And this was a time when there was Christian persecution and oppression uh, in the entire Mediterranean area, and it was often pretty much accepted by the surrounding culture. But here's what we know about this church father, Tertullian living under less than optimal circumstances as a believer in Jesus, and what he believed as far as this commandment, this new command goes, Tertullian was quick to point out that, if, that it wasn't any particular theology or philosophical argument that would necessarily persuade pagans about the truth of Jesus, but rather it was the seeming inexplicable love that Christians would have for one another in the midst of incredible hardship and persecution and oppression that would baffle and finally captivate non-Christians. That was a bigger testimony than anything that could be said. It was a love that gave its life for others. So this, as I have loved you, love for each other that Jesus commands of his followers is a big reason why this is a new commandment. And here's reason number four. This commandment is also a call to forego what the rest of this world tends to enjoy. We tend to enjoy bickering. We enjoy division. We enjoy jealousy. We enjoy causing envy in others. We enjoy generally lording ourselves and our opinions over others. Remember just a few minutes earlier, right before they entered the room for this meal, a few of the disciples were actually in an argument with one another, trying to hide it from Jesus, but they were in an argument with one another over which disciple was actually greatest. And once Jesus left, Jesus knew that that human spirit of rivalry could again take over their attitudes. And that would result in more petty bickering instead of doing the work of God. See, it's, it's just human nature to fall into this destructive stuff that's so counterproductive. It's the nature of sin. And the, even the apostles had it. We, we exalt Paul, and, and Paul was certainly great, and we love Paul, but Paul also, by his own confession, said, I am the chief among sinners. I am the most sinful 
person. We all have this, this nature. So the apostles had it and Jesus knew it and he knows that we have it. And so consider, just consider this. You don't have to turn there. I'll, I'll read it for you and it'll be up on the, on the screen. But this is a passage that I go back to over and over and over again. It's Mark uh, chapter 8, verses 31 through 36. And Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And then, after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. In other words, he didn't tell a story. He didn't tell a parable. It wasn't a mystery or a riddle. He just finally told them straight up. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You're more interested in this worldly stuff that is of no use, of no value. And then calling the crowd to him with his disciples, Jesus said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever would lose his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will save it. For what does it profit a man or a woman to gain the whole world and forfeit their soul? Deny yourself. That, that call, deny yourself and pick up your cross, I, I've always thought is sort of a universal and unique call. The universal call to all of us is to deny ourselves, to die to ourselves. The unique call is pick up your cross. All of us have different crosses. And one of the things that you and I need to remember is that because we all have different crosses, we need to be careful about how we approach other people because they don't have the same crosses that we do. We need to be sensitive to and empathetic toward the crosses of others so that we can love them and serve them better. My cross is not necessarily your cross, and I need to remember that. That's really important. But this is also a way of taking your mind off what the world values and putting it on what Jesus values. And he says, you know, the last are going to be first. That's what we need to be able to do. So this is why it is important to also understand that this love that Jesus is talking about is going to be powered by somebody or something other than us because we don't really have the ability, the strength, or the resources to love in this way. It's only powered by the coming Holy Spirit. Jesus is about to be executed, then he's going to be raised, and then he's going to leave. We see the ascension in Acts chapter 1. But he sends the Holy Spirit to his followers. And we're going to, it's not that the Holy Spirit didn't exist before Pentecost, it's just that the Holy Spirit hadn't officially come alongside the believers until that time in a way that they understood and that they were given power. And when we get to John 14 through 16, we're going to see Jesus talk a lot about the Holy Spirit. One of the most amazing things about that is when he tells his disciples, he's going to say in, in John chapter 16, he's going to say, I am going away, but you're going to be better off. What? How could that possibly be? Because I'm sending my spirit to you, the encourager, the one who will walk alongside of you. This love is a new commandment because it is powered not by our will, not by our desire, not by our ability, but because it's powered by the Holy Spirit. As, Bear, as Gary Burge at Wheaton College has written, love is more than just warm feelings. It is an attitude that reveals itself in action. So that's the new commandment, and that's why it's new. Now look at those last three verses, 36 through 38. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? I, I think this is really interesting to me. Again, pre-resurrection Peter was a mess, okay? Jesus is teaching on the new commandment, and Peter's like, where are you going? No, you're supposed to understand the new commandment, Peter, but he goes after it. He says, all right, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. 
What does it mean before the rooster crows three times? It means before the night is over, before that night is over, Peter is going to deny Jesus three times, and we know that uh, eventually he does do that. But again, he says, where I'm going, you cannot follow me. And we need to just be reminded again that only Jesus can go to the cross. Only Jesus can save us. We cannot save ourselves. And so he went to the cross so that we don't have to. And that's grace. And that is really good news. That's the gospel. And that brings us freedom. But oh, Peter, I think all of us can identify with and appreciate Peter's impetuous, in-the-moment enthusiasm. All of us can. All of us, I'm sure, have made promises in the moment that we felt sure we would keep, but then when it came time, maybe not so much. Not our best moment. We don't like to talk about those moments. But the truth is we live in a world of easy commitment breaking. Can I get an acknowledgement from anybody who's been betrayed by somebody who made a commitment to you and then said, nah, nah, not going to do it. Okay. So a little, I do this almost every year, a little Tom story time here. Uh, 25 years ago, when Redemption Gilbert was East Valley Bible Church, Tom was the lead pastor there, they arranged a bus trip they were going to rent coaches and take people down to the outlet malls in, in Casa Grande. This was back when outlet malls were really a big deal. And people used to go there, okay, pre-Amazon. So they promoted this, and 105 people signed up for this. And the people who were signing up for this were specifically told that they were ordering the coaches, the buses, and spending money, spending that money based on the signups. So this, from this company that they were dealing with, every coach held about 60 people. So they were in the process of reserving two coaches because 105 people had signed up from the transport company. Tom wisely, because of experience and because he understood human nature like nobody else, in my opinion, he told them to order only one coach. And the organizers of the, of, the, of the trip said, but we have 105 people signed up. This isn't going to be enough. And, and Tom just said, trust me, please, you'll be glad that you only ordered one coach. And on the day of the event, 53 people showed up. 105 signed up, 53 showed up. So we not only live in a world of easy commitment breaking, but we live in a world where those that the commitments are being made to know that they will probably be broken by half the people, half the time. Jesus is saying that we should be different than that. That our word should mean something. That when we say yes, it should mean yes. And when we say no, it should mean no. And that people should be able to count on that. And I know some of you are going, that's just a stupid bus trip to Casa Grande of all places. You know, we're talking about life and death here. Yeah, I get that. But you're missing the point. The point is that Jesus wants us to be people of the word and people of our word as well. We shouldn't be so casual with that. So Peter makes this commitment. <laughs> Interestingly about Peter, he does in fact deny Jesus, like I said, three times. It's a big deal, and it's a familiar part of the narrative of Jesus. But even so, after denying Jesus, things turned out okay for Peter. He was forgiven, and not only forgiven, but he was called to lead the early church. And then eventually he led the church in Rome. But also about Peter, I think this is kind of ironic, his promise to die for Jesus eventually did come true sometime in the mid-60s, he was executed for his faith because he was proclaiming the gospel. So let me, let me wrap things up. And, and to close, let's talk about Judas and Peter, who had two very different endings to their stories. And let's talk about what Jesus knew and does in the midst of those two stories. So Judas betrays Jesus. Peter denies knowing Jesus. It's another form of betrayal. And Jesus knew that all of this was going to happen. I mean, he's God. He knows our thoughts and our feelings and our actions even before we know them. So, well, if Jesus knew this, why didn't he stop them? Okay, here you go. 
little small rabbit to chase here. I hear as a pastor all the time from people about how God needs to give us free will and let us be who we are and let us do whatever we want and he should just accept everything. And then, of course, those very same people, when things don't work out for them, they're mad at who? Not themselves, but at God for not stopping them. It's fascinating to me. We don't get to have it both ways. As I mentioned in the prayer, there is one place where we get to have it both ways, and that's at the cross. We sin, somebody else dies for it. It's the only place where that aphorism is not true. Okay? But here's the thing. Jesus knew about both of them, Judas and Peter, and what they would really do, no matter what they said they were going to do. He knew what was going to happen, and yet, this is really important, he never stopped loving either one of them. This wasn't a problem with Jesus' love. It was an issue of Judas and Peter. And just like Judas and Peter, Judas Judas knows when you and I are going to sin. He knows when we're going to rebel against God and his word. He knows when we're going to betray and hurt him and hurt others and hurt ourselves. And yet he never, ever stops loving us. See, the question isn't necessarily our sin, though that is important. But the question really is, what are we going to do with the love and the grace of Jesus in the midst of our sin? That's the question. For Judas, it was an issue of both pride and despair. And by the way, despair actually is a characteristic or a function of pride. The two often come side by side. But for Judas, it was pride and despair that prevented him from coming back to Jesus in grace and forgiveness. For us today, again, I've seen this over and over again, pride and or despair is what keeps lost people from allowing God to embrace him with his redemptive love and grace. That's what happened to Judas. He refused to turn around and just come to Jesus. Jesus still loved him. But Peter... Well, Peter starts very badly. (laughs) He does. And it was pride and embarrassment, a form of despair in that case, that got to him. But, but, Peter was also humbled. And Peter took that humility back to Jesus, turned to Jesus in his humility. And that transformed who Peter was. I can't think of anybody who wouldn't like to be favorably compared to the post-resurrection Peter. Don't compare me to the pre-resurrection Peter, although that might be more accurate. But I would love to be compared to the post-resurrection Peter. He was unbelievable afterwards, powered by the Holy Spirit, undaunted in his purpose and mission. Judas just couldn't understand nor believe Jesus' incredible love for him. And therefore, he rejected that love. You know, this is really hard to understand, hard to fathom, but it's true. Jesus loves us more than even we love ourselves. He loves us more than we love ourselves. Peter eventually did understand the depth of this love, and he came to Jesus fully and completely, and it transformed his life. So now the question is, I think, obvious. Where are we going to land? Where will we land? Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for your word and its truth, and I just pray, I pray that we would be people of the word, people of our word, and people who point to you and your glory, and that we would live with the courage that you give us through the power of your Holy Spirit, that we would use your wisdom and discernment, but also that we would live in a way that has courage that takes those next steps of faith, even when we're not sure where it's going to end up. Father, help us to trust you and you above everything else, including who and what we think we are and what we know. Help us to do that, Father, and we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are going to move ourselves into a time of communion and reflection And uh, we're going to sing two more songs together as we do that. Um, Some of you know I want to talk a little bit about this idea of coming to the Lord's Supper. I was reminded this week 
about the elements of the Lord's Supper. You know, the bread, Jesus' body, and the wine or the juice, the blood of the new covenant. I was reminded of that. Those are very ordinary things. These kits, we might even describe them as even a little bit less than ordinary. We'd like the ordinariness of real bread and juice and wine like we used to pre-COVID. But the point is, is that we need to understand that God not only meets us, but he teaches us through really ordinary things. Because his love for us is a love that wants us to understand who he is and the grace that he has for us. He went to the cross, his body was broken, his blood was shed. And he tells us before he goes, the night before he goes to do that, he tells us that we're actually supposed to come to the table in fellowship and communion and be reminded of this death and that we're to do it together as the faith community until he comes again. And that's what we're about to do. It is a confession of our need for Jesus and it is a celebration of the fact that we have Jesus. It's a beautiful time. It's a sacred time. It is a sacrament. And so prayerfully, reverently, would you please come? And, and while you're coming, if you, if you have questions or prayers, we'll have people standing in the wings. You can talk to them. You can talk to them at any time during the last two songs. You can talk to them after the service if you like. You can go and talk to Andrea at the, at the Connect desk too if you'd like. And then when you feel led, take the elements. And if you feel led, then you can stand at any point and begin to join in the singing of these last two songs. So let's do that now.
Say. 
Amen. Praise God. Thank you for being together this morning to worship King Jesus. I want to remind you that our redemption communities, our small groups are relaunching for the fall. I have a table in the lobby and would love to set you up with a group if you've not yet connected with one. And there's a leadership, uh, RC leadership meeting uh, after second service in room eight. Let me give us our benediction for today. This comes out of Philippians chapter one, verse nine through 11. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Amen. Go and live all of life, all for Jesus.